today on EdgeFX. There's nothing to go back to, and what's left are environmentally compromised land, compromised by our system of intensive agriculture, compromised by municipalities or counties siting waste facility water treatment plants in these communities. So, I mean, where are we going and will that land be healthy for us? Sociologist Monica White speaks with Savvy Horn, Executive Director of the Land Loss Prevention Project. They discuss their SHIROs, environmental justice and public policy for African-American farmers, and the role of communal land ownership against histories of gentrification and redlining. We join them in conversation following the Tales from Planet Earth Film Festival in Madison, Wisconsin in early November. Alrighty. Hi, Savvy Horn. It's really a pleasure, privilege to have you here. Honored that you could join us for the viewing of A Dark Exodus and Ark of Justice and to serve on the panel for the Tales of the Planet Earth film series. Happy that you're here and would love for you to sort of talk a bit about your life and your work and how you came to fight on behalf of um, Black farmers and, and land, issues of land. Well, Monica, thank you very much for the invitation to be here and to participate across the media that you have pulled together. Myself, my early life, you just had to say you had a movie or a play, and I was there to look at it. (laughs) And so to be here commenting on films really gives me great pleasure and, and the subject matter of Black farmers and struggle and civil rights. I came to this work from a union perspective, went to Rutgers Law School and worked for District Council 37 and through marriage and in a meandering way, found my way south. And I've been happy very much ever since because it you know, gave me an opportunity to work at what I felt was my calling that I didn't quite had a definition of until I got there and sort of pulled together strands of my life. I had been in Zimbabwe for a year prior to coming to North Carolina, working then with one of the, I think, most prominent African-American NGO in Southern Africa, which was AfriCare, based in D.C., and interning with, with them and traveling to the countryside and working at UZ, auditing a course at UZ, University of Zimbabwe, Mm -hmm. and just growing my interest in agriculture and black farmers and what it meant to Mm -hmm. be a smallholder farmer on a land that's contested. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because the land in Zimbabwe at that time was contested. You had 94% of all arable land at the time owned by the minority whites Mm -hmm. and 97% of water rights owned by the minority. And so... Having been in that space and then moving south and then growing my knowledge around black farmers and discrimination and dispossession, Mm -hmm. as uh, written about by Pete Daniels' book, just coming full circle with that experience, really, I feel very blessed that I was able to be in that moment Mm -hmm. and be available in that moment to to really 
get into this work. And I'm blessed by having very strong staff support um, with our deputy director, program manager, and staff lawyers. And we've been really working sometimes at the margins mm-hmm. because we had lost state funding to do this work, mm-hmm. but we continue to do it. And we have gotten really good support, particularly from funders in this region, namely the Kellogg Foundation. So we're pretty grateful that we're still in it and fighting the struggle in preventing or stemming African-American land loss, but also for low-income farmers across the board who are in jeopardy of losing their livelihoods. Can you tell us both about the history of the Land Loss Prevention Project? What have been some of your successes and what have been some of the ongoing struggles? Okay, well, the Land Loss Prevention Project was founded more than 34 years ago by the North Carolina Association of Black Lawyers. And at the time, they were looking at models that they could really use to uh, flesh out their trajectory of work, and they looked at the Federation of Southern Cooperatives and the Emergency Land Fund, both movements grounded in Mississippi and Alabama, headquartered in Atlanta at the time, but mostly grounded in the rural South. And the models were used to help to figure out, well, what is the best way to get at this problem? And the problem that they saw that they wanted to put legal knowledge and tools towards was how to stem African-American land loss. So from the examples coming out of the South and particularly grounded in the civil rights movement, they began to see the need for legal strategies as well as community economic development. But clearly in so doing, you could not not look at what the other surrounding issues in the African-American community. So land loss really does work at the nexus of stemming land loss, stemming environmental injustice, because we saw it as as you lose land, you never know what was going to occupy that space Mm -hmm. and community economic development. So it really, in many ways, while we didn't have the term then, that we now have is really surrounding the issues of land justice mm-hmm. and justice in the biggest sense of our collective responsibility to the people and the environment and the planet. So would you say that there are specific successes the organization has had? Yes, I would say that. Uh, I think on average we serve about 350 persons. We cover not only just civil rights, we do environmental justice outreach. We founded the uh, North Carolina Environmental Justice Network. We incorporated it. We incorporated the Black Farmers and Agriculturalists Association, and mm. they led the activist strand in the Pigford One and and two lawsuits. We've also founded the Black family land trust Mm -hmm. and house it for a number of years. 
So I would think in terms of movement strategies, we have applied legal tools to very foundational work to strengthen the African-American communities, but particularly helping farmers on the ground, giving them the kind of legal assistance that they need to restructure their uh, operations to help them negotiate adequate settlement with the Department of Agriculture, particularly the Farm Services Agency, to restructure their debt, to give them the next leg up on their operation. We've helped countless families restructure air property situation, repositioning that land back into agriculture, because we don't believe in clearing title and situating it in one individual at the expense of everybody else in the family. So we would prefer to see uh, limited liability cooperation, family agreements mm-hmm. that keep the land within the family, but then give it its best use, which is agriculture and some housing that benefits the family. And the original vision of the forebearers that left this legacy for mm-hmm. the family. Mm-hmm. That's really important work. A part of your visit, an unexpected benefit, was the presentation that we did yesterday with the Women Food Agricultural Network, their conference. And during that presentation, we sort of unveiled the book, Land Justice, Reimagining Land, Food, and the Commons in the United States. Mm -hmm. And in this book, um, you have a chapter titled Resistance. Can you talk a bit about your chapter in this in this work in this book? Yes, well, it was a collaborative chapter with equal authorship. We have Tracy uh, Lloyd McCurdy, Dania Davy, Jerry Pennock, and myself. And I hope that's yeah. all the co-authors. Yeah. <laughs> and so, what we did was we were looking at land from coming off the ship, what it meant to have been captives on the Atlantic and leaving behind our homes and land and the affinity of everything that defined us and then resettling in the United States and being involved and and viewed in their and working in their slavery structure and at emancipation reimagining ourselves on the land under our own ownership. And we felt that in looking at the chapter, we're looking at how through this continuum from the arrival here till now that black farmers and the black community have always had to engage in struggle Mm -hmm. to continue to hold on to their land, Mm -hmm. to continue to be productive members in their rural communities around their agrarian structures. And then as the civil rights movement took off and we look at the land that's left, Mm -hmm. because we went from 20 million before the Great Depression down to today, 3 million. And so then the question was to us, well, how do we explain this now that a future generation could grapple with and understand and see the res- their responsibility to hold on to family land, to make productive uses, not only for their family and their community, but to lead a body of thought and information about our collective responsibility mm-hmm. to ourselves, our nation, the world, and the planet. So we saw resistance in terms of 
how we push back against oppression when it came to the land, as you know, that there were in many instances where African-American organized around civil rights mm -hmm. and that farmers and, and their land ownership was used to leverage mm -hmm. the ability of civil rights workers to remain in the battle. We also have heightened the land injustice hyped on the Native Americans by pointing to the seizure of their land to the benefit of the creation of what is the United States. But also we looked at, well, where we had significant land ownership, how do we retain that land ownership? And there were many forms of dialogue around that. Some were more revolutionary than others. You had the NRA, the new Black Republic coming into being in terms of looking at how do we collectively amass and give structure to the Black land ownership, the dominant land ownership that we had in Mississippi and Alabama and Southwest Georgia. How do we reorient those ownership so that we can get political power. Mm -hmm. uh, in North Carolina, you had in instances, Soul City, again, a planned mm -hmm. African-American community around agrarianism. And so I think for us, we saw the benefit of land, but also how land ownership opens up mm -hmm. a community to think not just for themselves, not for the immediate community, but be a, an instrument for justice mm. everywhere. Mm -hmm. And to paraphrase Martin Luther King, an injustice in your presence is an injustice everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where we saw that peace coming out of and the potential of self-liberation mm -hmm. mm -hmm. that ownership had, mm -hmm. not just of your physicality, but of, of your mind. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> I am just very uh, happy to be here with you, Monica. And I'm very happy that you have landed at University of Wisconsin-Madison because you. it plays a very special part in, in my development. When I came back from Africa, the first conference that I came to was at the Land Tenure Center. Because, you know, you're in Zimbabwe, but you're when you're in Zimbabwe, you can only talk about everywhere else but mm -hmm, Zimbabwe. Mm -hmm. And that was the deal. Mm -hmm. When you were in South Africa, you could talk about the whole continent mm -hmm. and claim the whole continent. And so by coming to this conference and meeting land rights activists and professors and graduate students from the United States, from Africa, from India, from Malaysia, from Indonesia, Central, everywhere, looking at land and mm -hmm. land tenureship, land ownership, was very, very important in the shaping of my consciousness and the work mm -hmm. that became the most important, one of the most important things in my life. Mm, so beautiful. I credit being here and make, making connections at this university. Wow. And, and I, I miss the Land Tenure Center mm -hmm. to this day and what it was able to do. And I'm hoping it under different times and better times that it will be resourced again, but mm -hmm. with a, a particular calling, looking at environmental justice and and land tenure rights. So really, a broader look at community mm -hmm. security mm -hmm. that deals with land ownership, 
being free from environmental issues and the proper management of our natural resources. Mm-hmm. So that that would so no, I'm not kind of saying look, I want this tenure center back, but I would like to see a reformulation <laughs> that is all encompassing. Mm-hmm. So powers that be, university, <laughs> I'm calling you out. <laughs> So, um, you and I have a shared Shiro. Absolutely do. Um, and this would be uh, Mrs. Sherrod, Mrs. Shirley Sherrod. And that will be one of the documentaries that we'll see this evening is Ark of Justice. Could you talk a bit about who Mrs. Sherrod is, who she is to you, and what does she mean to the movement? Shirley Sherrod, one could say mm-hmm. so much mm-hmm. about Shirley. But when I look at the Soul sister Shirley Sherrard. Mm. I look at a woman at 17 who suffered a loss of her father being shot to death by uh, the white farmer next door and just being able to re-engage fully in life from, mm. from that tragic loss of a parent and resituating yourself in the civil rights movement as it redefines her life mm-hmm. and then working again at that intersection of land rights mm-hmm. because that's what led to the death of mm-hmm. her dad. The, the fact that he owned a farm, mm-hmm. was thriving as a farmer, was seen as an affront in that community. And it arcans back to W.E.B. Du Bois and the Souls of Black Folk his work on the of the black bell chapter in that hundred plus century plus year old book and it reads like yesterday and mm. today mm. all at once mm-hmm. so when i met shirley and just reimagine her life and looking at the person that mm. she is today and the work the work of founding new communities one of the first African-American land trust in the United States and having to lose a 5,000 acre farm and community and vision and everything, everything was in that land. To lose that and then to pull yourself back. So you had the first tragedy of losing your father mm-hmm. and, and your livelihoods and identity. And then the second one, of new communities almost being crushed to the ground. And then the third one of having then ascend to a position of power within the state of Georgia by the very agency that would have denied your Mm -hmm. livelihoods Mm -hmm. then to now be as director of the state, you know, USDA rural development Mm -hmm. in the state of Georgia. And then to have racist machinations driving you out of your business and then very powerful people who should know better mm-hmm. cave into that and didn't interrogate the framework to see whether it was true, just jump at it. And then, of course, they have backtracked. And to come away from that and then rededicating yourself mm-hmm at the end of the day, to rebuild new communities. And now having a reoriented plantation, rededicated to serving the community, a 1,600-acre in which the visions of the community, the collective ownership of Mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
is in place under the new community's land trust once again. It just speaks volumes. Yeah. I mean, there's so many ways you can look at Miss Sherrard, and it's almost like she could be a shero in so many different ways in your life hmm. that she becomes a lodestone that you go back to again and again mm -hmm. for substance and succor. Mm. Right? Wow. I, I recall the Bible saying, if the salt has lost its savior, where should it be seasoned? Mm. Right? And so if we were to have not had a Shirley mm. Sherrard in our lives, mm. where would we get the season that we need mm -hmm. to make our work the way it has become yeah. and to be of use to our communities. Wow. So that's how I see Shirley Sherrard. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you. You know, it's funny um, having you here and having LaDonna Redmond from Minneapolis as the keynote speaker for the WeFan conference sure. yesterday brought back memories of how you and I met. That's right. And we Twin met. Sweeties. Yeah. Uh, it was a um, food justice uh, and policy conference through the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. We became fast friends. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so I wonder if you can tell us uh, the importance of policy in negotiating land specifically for black farmers, but also other under-resourced, uh, traditionally overlooked farmers or small farmers? Well, as you know, land ownership comes with legal rights. So it's an instrument that you need proper documentation of and legal title to. And so given the basis of Western orientation, in land ownership is like a body of rights and, and it's enshrined in the law. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes it's governed, of course, by state law, which is why you have these intestacy laws in which air property arises where you have multiple owners mm -hmm. of land. So tenancy in common, those are creatures of state law, mm -hmm. right? And because it's the most weakest of a state, in land ownership, fee simple being the absolute ownership and a life estate, the next one down in which you could have a life estate for 99 years and it reverts back. But in, in this tenancy in common, you and I, all three of us in this space could have equal rights to, to a very defined piece of property. And if one of us decide that they want a piece of it or want out, then it creates a crisis in the relationship, mm -hmm. and then you have to resort to the court system. So again, all of that is going to be driven by a framework of policy, which is enshrined in the law. So in order to break the barriers down, you really have to have a new framework of policy coupled with a reorientation of the law. And I must say one of the leaders in this work came out of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and that is now Dean Thomas Mitchell mm -hmm. at uh, University of Texas A&M, Texas and congratulations oh. to him. Mm -hmm. But um, while here in Madison, he was able to work with the uh, Uniform Commission on a State Statute and came up with, I think, one of the best model state law to deal with air property and partition sale that will then reorient any legal work 
to resituate the property back in the hands of the family on the certain set of circumstances. So mm-hmm. I would like to, again, just thank UWM for um, laying that critical foundation for that work. So yes, going back to your original point, policy becomes the driver of legislation, right? Mm-hmm. And in order to change legislation, you also have to work at policy, get a new policy framework, and then from there you have adaptive instruments to fashion that into legislation. We've seen that time and time again in the Farm Bill, the omnibus bill that determines agriculture Mm -hmm. in our country. We had the minority rights program orientation that became the Section 2501 program which allowed the agency to have a framework of dealing with minority farmers that came from policies that came from the ground up, from in the fields with Mm -hmm. leading organizations such as the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, the Royal Coalition, the National Family Farm Coalition, and others coming together, and land loss was involved, coming together putting together position papers, sort of, you know, the policy framework, and from there, fashioning legislation to make that happen. You saw that again before that in the 1980s farm crisis, where coming out of that, you had a set of policy recommendations on the farm credit program Mm -hmm. that then become enshrined in legislation. So I think, if you will, policy is a handmaiden Mm -hmm. of law. Wow. And I find that interesting because I think one of the uh, one of the areas of the food justice movement, Mm -hmm. especially for black folk, is Mm -hmm. often in response to policy. But we don't often hear that, you know, we know it's important, but we also know that this is often a place where we've been overlooked. So to hear you say how critical and important it is, Mm -hmm. um, is really encouraging. And it gives us something to think about in terms of not just why it's important, but how it's important. Yes, and going back to the 1990 People of Color Summit on the Environmental Justice, a certain set of enumeration of broad framework of policy mm-hmm. dealing with environmental justice, that framework then became part of an executive order mm-hmm. that uh, President Clinton signed. So again, and and the benefit of of this type of happening is that you had an on-the-ground people referendum of what needs to be done to combat environmental racism in our community Mm -hmm. that then, with champions from that movement, convince the president that he needed to sign or develop a piece of policy framework Mm -hmm. that agencies would have to follow in implementing their own regulations. Mm -hmm. Again, a policy framework that benefited the environmental justice movement, and Mm -hmm. that was critically important. A number of people from this region, and particularly in Detroit, had a lot to do with that framework. Well, you mentioned Detroit. (laughs) Okay, I'll hold back. (laughs) But this does lead me to ask you this question. Can you give me an example of a historic organization and a contemporary organization that you're inspired by? Oh, that is such an unfair (laughs) 
Um, <laughs> well, uh, considering that I don't want to be part, uh, into self-aggrandizement, let me punt and say the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, mm -hmm. which celebrated their 50th anniversary. Just mm -hmm. imagine mm -hmm. an African-American institution that's about community economic development mm -hmm. that built in its very beginning in excess of 120 co-ops surviving for 50 years mm. to celebrate and to continue to grow that organization. That's astounding. Kudos to its historic leadership, mm -hmm. Prejean mm -hmm. and Ralph Page, but now under the new leadership of Cornelius Landon and, and Monica Range, we are now seeing some new initiative mm -hmm. in that organization that will bear fruit mm -hmm. and that will serve the movement into the century as we continue to see stemming land loss dealing with air property mm. and community economic development. They are still important mm -hmm. to, to keep in vital rural southern communities mm -hmm. and i might add everywhere mm -hmm. because when we look at detroit and look <laughs> at the impact of the recession mm -hmm. of 2008 mm -hmm. and the loss of black wealth where the financial structure basically stripped african-americans of wealth in detroit mm -hmm. and allow Detroit to get to a place where it becomes ripe for the picking of anybody with a little money mm -hmm. or a lot of money who are not black to acquire what was the foundation of the black middle class, mm -hmm. leading black middle class in the country. To see that Detroit is now where it is and to see that African Americans cannot afford to participate in the the reclaim new Detroit mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because our economics is basically still jacked up mm -hmm. from 2008. Mm -hmm. A lot of people have recovered, but our communities, ourselves, we haven't gotten to that place. So yet still, the organization around land, community sustainability, mm -hmm. and, and food mm -hmm. justice came to the fore and is now a lead organizing drive in Detroit to get the black community on board to re-envision themselves in, in that place to grow food mm. and to sustain themselves to now where they now have a new vision mm. of a cooperative, collectively owned grocery store. You have the, the Detroit Food Justice Network and, and it's, its own impact on the policy council of which you are a part of, Monica. And, <laughs> and you all gave, gave us some good framework mm. to interrogate the emerging food policy council movement that really lack the the racial equity lens right mm. so we we now begin to appreciate the role of food sovereignty agroecology in shaping people's consciousness the way we eat the way we grow food the mm. way we own land mm -hmm. and and the need that we all must benefit mm -hmm from the land and, and, and maybe even the form of ownership that we have won't work mm. for future mm -hmm. generations. Mm -hmm. We have to really think about maybe free, simple, absolute is not the way forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
for the new generation. So you made some connection. You you um sort of uh, got my two separate questions with one answer and talking about the Federation as a historical and a contemporary example. And I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. I want to know if there are land. So we talk about Detroit. We can talk about land grabs. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, we talk about the South. We can talk about contested land. Can you talk a bit about what land issues, land justice issues connect the North, the South? the urban and the rural. Okay. Well, you know, I'm going to have to look at it through the lens of gentrification. Okay. And an air property. Because in many respects, if you go back to the road home, right? New Orleans, Katrina. Mm -hmm. Wow. I mean, I thought I had seen the worst of what a flooding can do to a people. And then we got Houston, right? And, and now Puerto Rico. And now Puerto Rico. And the Virgin Islands. Mm-hmm. And the other islands that somewhat came on our radar during the crisis but disappeared right. because they don't have the United States mm-hmm. behind them. Oh, my God. You can get lost in this narrative. But clearly, in all these places, the way to recover and access federal assistance is to have title. Mm-hmm. to whatever, to the land, to your home. And so what we found in New Orleans was the lack of title prevented African Americans to participate in federal programs like on the road home because they didn't have title mm-hmm. and they couldn't participate. So we we now see that will be a problem in Houston and everywhere else in Puerto Rico because mm-hmm. of how historically we have viewed land as a collective mm-hmm. consciousness, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And But then when you have to deal with legality and you don't have papers and you can't get assistance. So, and the same thing has happened in many urban areas where we've lost land to gentrification and redlining was that we couldn't get into uh, banking structure to recondition mm-hmm. our home, to fix them up, because a lot of people didn't have title, because it was great-grandma's house. I mean, I come from a family in the Caribbean that came up through Haiti, Cuba, to New Orleans, to New York. Mm-hmm. My grandmother went to her f- first school in Greenwich Village, in 1910, mm-hmm. and they went back, right? Mm-hmm. So when you do look at the back and forth, the, the fluidity of uh, people of African descent flowing through the region, the Caribbean, mm-hmm. all over the place, and the fact that they left property in family in an estate that mm-hmm. subject them to, to the whims of developers, of state law, you know, we continue to, to lose our ability to hold on to these properties, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And so it still all goes back to the framework that unless we can resituate land in its best value, highest use, and and make it a property of families, but strong enough that we can engage in the market to benefit the land and ourselves and the community. And I don't see that much. We are going to be able to do to better ourselves wow. if we lose our land right, right. in urban centers right. and the rural South. I mean, you think about the remigration mm-hmm. because you spoke mm-hmm. early about 
your people, you know, coming from Alabama to Detroit, which was that classic migration route. If your family were to go back, what are they going back to? Right? Because mm-hmm. of how air property has worked, you've lost land. Mm-hmm. Because of how USDA has worked, land was foreclosed on and sold and there's nothing to go back to. And what's left are environmentally compromised land, mm-hmm. compromised by our system of intensive agriculture, mm-hmm. compromised by municipalities or counties siding waste facility w- water treatment plants mm-hmm. in these communities. So, I mean, where are we going and will that land be healthy for mm-hmm. us? Mm-hmm. Wow. In your work, you talk about cooperatives as a legal strategy, collective ownership of land as a legal strategy. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you can talk a bit about what cooperatives more broadly allow communities to do. Oh, I think Dr. Neymar's book on cooperatives and mutual societies, really, how historically Mm -hmm. that has led to wealth within mm-hmm. our community is mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. very valid. I, I have a real life example from North Carolina of young people, right? 30 somethings coming together over a period of six to 10 years, mm-hmm. saving their money collectively together, mm-hmm. coming up with a plan for a collective farm named Earthseed, which I'm, I'm thinking that Octavia Butler is smiling <laughs> down on them. <laughs> coming together with a plan that is around growing food, but also nurturing our soul. It's mm. totally integrated plan, mm. holistic, really a land, a structure that feeds the body, mind, and soul. And so those are young people who views that model. Mm-hmm. And today they're close to about 60 acres mm. of land. Wow. And within a stone throw away from the center of Durham, right? Mm-hmm. And and so they came together and planned that. Mm-hmm. And that still is the way in which we need to look at land and we need to really look at co-housing. We need to look at building smaller home structures mm-hmm. on land that we have. I think going back to the new communities model, mm-hmm. you got to build a complete community, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And we now know that we don't need a four-bedroom house to sustain us Mm -hmm. because we can't sustain the planet at that growth. And so I I firmly believe that to save ourselves and the planet, there has to be a reorientation of laws Mm -hmm. to help us to actualize, to give us the security that families all need, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, to be protective of the natural resources and the environment that we have. Mm-hmm. I love that. Is there anything about the current food movement that you find especially encouraging? Yes. I I want to think that, and I was inspired by the reprinting in Portside this year of a piece that W.E.B. Du Bois spoke to maybe about 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. And in that piece, he wrote, uh, I think it was entitled Behold the Land Speech, in which he foretold of a period of new cooperative agriculture (laughs) on renewed land owned by the state with capital furnished by the state, right? And that, and recognized and coordinated with city life. 
And within that vision, he saw young men and women of all devotions coming together to lift the banner of humanity mm. and walk towards a civilization which will be free and intelligent, which will be healthy and unafraid, and build in the world a culture by black folk, joined by people of all colors and races, without poverty, ignorance, and disease. That is a vision that I'm holding, and that is what I see happening. I saw it yesterday at the We Fan Conference of women with that vision, mostly white women, but they had the vision, and they're willing to work towards that vision. And so I'm encouraged by the future, and I'm encouraged because we're willing to look at land in a new way. And I'm encouraged by Winona LaDuke, who's like, you know, we need, Native Americans need to own their land Mm. so that they can reclaim themselves. Mm. And if we have to do it bit by bit, we're we're willing to do that. Just like these young people in Durham, bit by bit, and then move the country to a better place. I'm extremely honored to have you here in Madison. Love you, appreciate your life's work. And so grateful that you took some time to talk to us about the vision, the history, the future, and what's encouraging. Thank you so much. And thank you. That was Monica White, sociologist and professor of environmental justice at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, speaking with Savvy Horn. Executive Director of the Land Loss Prevention Project, an organization committed to curtailing the loss of African-American-owned land in North Carolina. In her role as Executive Director, Savvy Horn advocates for financially distressed and limited resource farmers through litigation, public policy, and by promoting sustainable agriculture. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History, and Environment, and the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by Brian Hamilton and me, Sarah Thomas. Special thanks go to Peter Boger and Greg Mittman, who produced the Tales from Planet Earth Film Festival. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. We'll be back soon with an episode featuring historian Megan Raby. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to the EdgeFX podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or TuneIn. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review. That really helps us connect to new listeners. And you can also follow us on Twitter at EdgeFXMAG. And... As always, keep up with a steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgeeffects.net. <laughs>